Luisa von Flotto is a translator at Ottawa University, and she translates from German and French into English. And her most recent book is Girls Closed In by France Théoré. Welcome to this microphone. Thank you. Let's talk about Canada as a mecca for translation. Translation has been going on here between English and French for the last 30, 40 years. Uh, we are highly skilled in that area. We teach that, that uh, skill and we are very good at theorizing it as well and developing theoretical frameworks for translation. So Ottawa is, is known as a center? Oh, yes. Yeah. More so than Vancouver or Montreal? Oh, yeah. This is the only school of translation in the entire country. Okay. But this here is the only school that um, does trilingual translation, English, French, and Spanish, has an MA in translation and a PhD in translation studies. So Ottawa is a mecca within a mecca? Yes. Okay. Yeah. What is it that you are working toward? I love doing literary translation. It is the most challenging and the most fascinating kind of translation to do. And in Canada at the moment, it is only possible to translate between French and English as a literary translator. What do you mean only possible? You mean that that's the only thing that's funded by the government? That's the only thing that's funded by the government. That's also the only thing that publishing houses receive government funding for. So if you happen to translate from German into English or from Persian into English, you can translate all you like, but you will not find a publishing house that can afford to publish the book that you've just translated for free. The other side of the coin is that if you translate between English and French, the publishing houses are funded by the government to publish those translations. The translator is funded by the Canada Council at 15 cents a word to produce the translation. And so that uh, those are the only feasible language com combinations to work in in Canada at this moment, which is better than in other countries where there is no government support for literary translation countries such as the USA where translators could work from all those languages because, again, the publishing industry isn't as dependent on subsidies, but I mean, where... a huge, huge Spanish population in sure. the States, for example, sure. so the market would uh, yeah. make it... Feasible. where the market makes it possible. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, uh, um, that's, that's one of the real problems that... Um, literary translators in Canada suffer from. First of all, it's not particularly fascinating to only translate Canadian work into Canadian, the other Canadian language. We are, a lot of us are um, polyglots and have lived in various parts of the world and, and or are immigrants or are the children of immigrants and have got those other languages and would like to use them and also use our expertise and our knowledge of those other cultures, which is what you need when you translate from German into English or from Italian into English. You have to know the source. Yeah, yeah you have to know the source culture. Yeah. So at the moment, there's a movement afoot to make it clear to funding bodies, such as the Canada Council here, that it's time to realize that Canada really is a potential mecca for translation into English, not into French so much, but into English of various world languages, and that it would make a lot of sense to assist 
translators living in Canada who know those world languages come from those cultures to work into English and where and to fill a huge gap in general translation into English in the world where very, very little is translated from other languages. To give an example, um, in the U.S., 300 books a year in total are translations which are published. The rest is all stuff that's originally written in English so that, in fact, there's very, very little influence from outside, from other cultures, that makes it into the English language. And most of those 300, I bet, are from established writers, so there's no introduction to the English-speaking world of some some of the best, young, exciting new writers. No, that's exactly it. And even if there is, those young, new, exciting writers are published in tiny presses uh, that can afford to produce a thousand copies of a book that have very little promotional uh, money for promotion and so on. And so those writers fall into the great black hole of non-reception. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the age-old struggle between making money and taking risks on interesting new adventures, yeah. experimental artists yeah. and uh, that's um, pretty sad isn't it? Yeah. yeah and really it's not that huge a risk to publish a book can cost $10,000 to translate a book of 200 pages at 200 words a page or 250 words a page will cost around $7,000 so to bring in a, in a new writer uh, would be at the most $20,000. How much other useless things or how many other useless things are bought and uh, for $20,000 when a, when a wonderful new book could be translated at that cost? Well, you know, the other thing that's, that's so interesting is that that, that cost is, can even be um, reduced because because Sony has just uh, has just upgraded and will be launching its its latest ebook that apparently is is just uh, as legible and as mm-hmm. portable cool. as a paperback and and it'll be able to store up to eighty books in it mm-hmm. so that's that's really quite exciting yeah. I think I mean talk about uh, uh, saving the environment. Mm-hmm. And also um, reducing costs. Reducing costs, which will mm-hmm. hopefully allow for a lot more younger, experimental, mm-hmm. perhaps less quote marketable writers to get exposure mm-hmm. to audiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and make room for translation, for funding for translation, mm-hmm. because the translation is the crucial operation that must take place for a new exciting writer from Amsterdam to be legible or to be read in Toronto or to be read in in any other English-speaking place. Not just Amsterdam, but in China or Thailand or or Taiwan or Poland. So you could almost say that uh, Canada's approach, not being the melting pot that Mm -hmm. the American model Mm -hmm. exhibits, Mm -hmm. is, is again a real benefit. Yes, yes, because those people who have come in as immigrants have often maintained 
a lot of their culture and passed it on to the second generation and even the third generation. And, and often those second and third generations, they have English as their first language, but they have a, an intimate knowledge of the culture of, this, of the source language. Polish or German or whatever it would be. Mm-hmm. So that and and that's really important in translation because if you if you read a, a German book, which is what from the language that I translate from, you can recognize in the German text metaphors, aphorisms, proverbs, children's riddles and rhymes or references to them that come up automatically because you are intimate with that culture, and which a translator who has learnt German at university from the age of 20 on would never catch. Never. So it gives a deeper uh, oh. texture, richness, and profundity mm-hmm. to to the translation. Yeah, yeah. To make the work itself that much more appealing to the Absolutely. Yeah. The interesting thing here is that this isn't just kind of an artistic, cultural story. Mm-hmm. It's a it's an economic story, which mm-hmm. is of course what gets the government all fired up. Mm-hmm. If, if they can, you know, help industry to make more money and it happens to be in culture, fantastic. That would that's a wonderful idea. <laughs> yeah, and there is at the moment a lobby group that has formed within the Literary Translators Association, but also attached to writers' associations in Canada, and this group is lobbying the Canada Council. And because the Canada Council is at the moment the place from which literary translation is funded, and the the publishing of literary translation is funded in Canada, so the, but the Canada Council has certain rules in place, which allow it to fund only English or Canadian English or Canadian French translation. And this lobby group is what's the name pushing. of the lobby group? I don't think it even has a name. It's a subcommittee for uh, other languages within the Literary Translators Association of Canada. The very active person in this regard is a woman who's originally from Chile, came to Canada as a 12-year-old and was the president of the Literary Translators Association for a number of years, and her name is Beatrice Zeller, and she lives in Toronto. Okay. Because she translates from Spanish and into Spanish, and French and English, she but Spanish is her origin and her most intimate language, and so she's always, always been been frustrated by the fact that that the Canada Council treats her, she says, like an immigrant (laughs) and insists that she deal with French and English. That's what we are. We are a country of immigrants. Yeah, but some are are preferred. Second class immigrants. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Me too. Uh, Okay, Mm -hmm. so why don't you lobby Industry Canada? That's where to go. Good question. I don't think that any of us who do this on, as volunteers, we're all focused on the Canada Council. We think the Canada Council is the be-all and end-all and has been for us. And you're right. We Nobody's thought about lobbying Industry Canada. But you're right. I will note it down and talk about it with Beatrice because Beatrice and I are on the same committee. It really captures the essence of what Canada is. And here's, mm-hmm. a, here's a great potential industry that mm-hmm. uh, that we can uh, we can grow mm-hmm. so uh, but you know I mean Canada Council is uh, focused I guess by its mandate to to sort of translate between the two official languages yep. I mean that's its mandate yep. uh, I, would, I would imagine yeah and its translation budget is minuscule yeah minuscule yeah, yeah. so moving along mm-hmm. from the business side to the artistic mm-hmm. side 
you know, me as an English reader, I want to read what the author wanted to say to his or her readers. I don't want to read some adaptation from a translator. I want to read something as close as possible to what this great writer had to say to the readers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In that case, it would be wise to learn the language of the great writer. Too lazy. <laughs> I only have one life to live. <laughs> so, I guess the second best is to read a good translation. What's and your definition of good? A good translation. Yeah, there are a number of different points of view on that, and I guess the two main ones are, and, and they have been kind of labeled recently by a translation theory um, as domesticating a, a book from another culture or foreignizing a book from another culture. Those are the two extremes. In French it's called cibliste translation. Cible is a target towards heading towards the target language or sourcier translation, sticking to the source language. So... So, the, yeah, that's a sorcière, not a sourcier. It's a huge difference. <laughs> Anyway, the point is that if you produce what you would like to have, which is a translation which is very, very close to the original work... Or at least the intent, I guess. That's the most important thing. Yeah, yeah. The intent. I mean, there are... What is the intent? There are huge books written on the intention. Can one ever know? an author's intention and so on. I mean, you can't know the intention of Shakespeare, but I think you could probably know the intention of a living author if the translator spends a lot of time with a living author, author, and those would be the best best translations, I would suggest. Yeah, Yeah. they are, because uh, because the author and translator can spend time together, and it's very common in Canada to find that, because it's such a small industry, we all know each other. Um, But say you have an author who's living in China and you come to and you're translating him or her in Canada you're not likely to to be able to do that and often authors don't know necessarily what they intended either there's a lot of unconsciousness in the writing but in any case to produce a translation that's that's close to the author, as close as possible to the author, there's always a danger of ending up in in a situation where you produce quite a literal translation, which is then difficult to read. It's boring. It's either boring or it's awkward or it causes you to trip all the time over things that are not um, formulated in in normal or, or mainstream English. But they reflect much better the form of the original Polish or the form of the original German. So basically, the problem comes down to a problem of form versus content, really, really often. So you can either try to extract the content and write it in the smoothest English that makes it sound as if it had originally been written in New York or in Toronto, or, and and forget about all the strange curlicues and and frolics of of the original, or you can try and get some of those in and write it in an English that will inevitably be somewhat bumpy, awkward, and then you have something that's more difficult to read, but that also gives you a better idea of what the 
what some of the specific uh, aspects of the of the original type of writing are of the you know the formal aspects of that that writing and form and content cannot usually be separated in a literary text they go together so it's a, it's very very difficult and one of the ways to, to handle it is to do footnoting people don't editors publishers tend not to like footnotes they think it puts people off because it doesn't read smoothly and interrupts the flow and so on I like footnotes Love it, always have. Um, well, especially if they're all stuck at the back. <laughs> I'd want them at the bottom of the page so I can check out there. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's an ongoing, ongoing debate. That is an ongoing debate. And we here at the at the university, when we study literary translations that have been done, let's say thirty years ago, then we look at or 40 years ago, or let's say the same text translated in, in 1900, uh, some 19th century text from France, say, translated in 1900, translated in 1960, and then translated again in 1990. And it's very interesting to see how the source text, or the tra- target text, is so different. But the source text is still the original source text. So what happened? What happened in 1900? What happened in 1960? What happened in 1990 to make the translations come out so differently? And that's, I mean, the question, the, the answer to that is, is very complicated, and s- but it really has to do with the, the reading, the way we read, and mm. the position from which we read, and the position from which the translator is reading, and also the notion that that translator has of, of his or her audience, who... Who are they translating for? Yeah, well, I think they're, I mean, again, getting this, this ugly uh, Philistine uh, view back into the picture. Assume you want to write it in a way that's going to appeal to the largest audience. So you can sell. Actually, there's a, there's a new translation out that just came out maybe in the fall of some, some important late 19th century Russian writer. I think it's Dostoevsky. I'm not sure was produced by a professor in England at the University of Northampton, I believe, and deliberately simplified. Because the idea is that Dostoevsky is an important late 19th century writer who should be read, but cannot be read at the moment, because, but at least not by a certain audience. And so the language and the whole format of it has to be simplified so that it can reach an audience which is no longer used to reading. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like Thoughts. Kenneth Branagh bringing Shakespeare to the masses. Then. Yeah, yeah. Through the through the, the movie theater. Yeah. And it also happens with it has happened with the Iliad. Has happened with mm-hmm. the Odyssey. Well, Robert Graves is a mm-hmm. bit of a controversy around that. He dumbed down the Iliad, mm-hmm. uh, and um, scholars are questioning the mm-hmm. validity of his translation. Yeah. Yeah. So you're always you're as a translator you're always caught between be, between this this original and the and the expectations of your various readers. Yeah. Every reader has a different expectation, and you've, if you've, you're translating for a hundred thousand different readers, every one of them is going to be able to criticize your translation if they want, and why, while they don't criticize the author necessarily or the the source text, but the translations are the the texts that are. So important for mediation, and they're the ones that get get just beaten up, bloodied, where <laughs> where they should be celebrated, mm-hmm. because without them, you couldn't get anywhere near Dostoevsky, or the Iliad, or any, or Dante, or any, or Proust, or Flaubert, or any of those Goethe, any of the the greats of of that have that have created our culture or the backbone of the culture. 
Yeah, what we should do is uh, put together your list of uh, the great works uh, <laughs> and, and what you consider to be the best versions, and I'll, I'll pop that up on the website. Oh, that would be cool. Let's do that. But yeah. uh, in the meantime, uh, just to close this interview, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps you could give me a list and our listeners a list of particular novels that you you think the translation into English is sublime, the best. <laughs> No, I don't. But I n have particular novels that I've read in translation where I couldn't read the original that I thought were wonderful. And recently you couldn't read them because you don't speak the language or you couldn't read them because they're so difficult? No, no, I couldn't. No, 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 it's just because I don't know the language. Yeah. Well, how do you know how good the translation is then? Well, I just know that it's a good novel. That's all. And that's the tricky, that's the tricky thing. You... you um, you can't really decide if it's a good translation. And I haven't done, I've only done work, comparative work on Simone de Beauvoir to see Simone de Beauvoir translated into English by a number of writers. And then I would say, you know, which translation, it's an enormous, which translation is, is preferable, or I, which one I prefer. It's a huge labor to sit and compare an original with, with its translation. Huge. Although people don't want to do that, nobody. No, but does. computers can do that sort of stuff for you. Can't they, they can yeah. evaluate. Yeah, they can. They can put num numbers and stats yeah. together and identify it and color up the words that are different and make yeah. it make it easier that way. I would think. But it's it's such a it's such a subjective thing. The feel, the way a language feels, and the understanding of the of the details and the nuances in the in the source text and then to go into the translation and see whether they're there or not um, and how they've been rendered or if they've been completely ignored or not even recognized mm. that's that's something a computer could never do a computer can can do word searches and Stats. things like that yeah. Yeah, yeah but that work of of evaluating translations is something that's hardly done it's certainly not done by critics who usually just read the translation as if it had been published in, as if it were an original that came out in English, well, often don't, don't recognize it. No. no, nobody does. We, only a few places where, like, like this particular school or other translation programs, would have the expertise to do that. And in these. And yet, but, sorry, and, mm. and yet you have these, uh, I would say, pretentious uh, professors who will uh, say, well, this translation is. is is much preferable to, to mm -hmm. that one. That one's been discredited. Mm -hmm. So what they've actually gone and read them all. <laughs> you have no. I don't know. Maybe they have. Maybe they haven't. But they they would need to justify such statements. It's very easy to to you know, trot out something like that to demolish somebody's translation and say here the one that was done 30 years later is much better. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily better. It's just fresher or more recent or yeah. has or more applicable to yeah, the kinds more contemporary of language. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, it's not. So you're not going to uh, you're not going to throw uh, you're going to throw us a bone here then. A bone to jump on. Yeah, a bone to chew on, <laughs> and maybe to read. <laughs> Give us an example of a, you know, you've read, you know both uh -huh. languages. Uh -huh. Give us an example of uh, sublime work uh -huh. in your field. In my field. Like, what, what do you think uh -huh. are some of the greatest translations from, from, from French and German into English? Who's the greatest translator of all time? Aside from yourself. <laughs> I wouldn't dream of calling myself the greatest translator of all time. Um... 
the translator of Marcus, has got a very, very good reputation. Marcus Aurelius? No, uh, um, Garcia Marquez. Oh, Marquez. Oh, Marquez. Rick Grossman. Grossman, Edith Grossman. I know that the translator of a Spanish writer whose name escapes me at the moment, Peter Bush. He's the translator? Yeah, Peter Bush is his translator. Excellent reputation. Um, there are thousands of German translators because in Germany, translation is something that people, literary translation is something that people live off. In unthinkable in any English location. They live off because they're translating other languages into German. Yeah. Seventy percent of what's published in Germany is published in translation. And they get paid handsomely by the government to do that? No, by the publishing companies. Like Bertelsmann? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about handsomely, but they get paid by and they can live uh, as literary translators. Whereas here they can. Yeah. A good friend of mine, yeah. Beate translates uh, Glissant, Edouard Glissant, Martinique writer who writes about you know, the, the Caribbean and the marginality and hybridity and things like this. She translates him into German and travels all over Germany with him when he comes. I mean, the exposure given to translation in those countries, Germany, Sweden, Norway, um, the Benelux countries, are much, much bigger than here. Here, a translator and an author team are rarely seen together. Yeah. And when they are, there's no audience for them. It's interesting, though, you know, the countries you mentioned, I mean, most of the population speak English, so, uh, yeah. but that's their second language, and I guess they might prefer to read yeah. in their first language yeah. of choice. Yeah. yeah. The translator of Umberto Eco, for instance, in Germany, has also got very strong reputation. The translator of Finnegan's Wake in Germany, whose name, who I saw do a wonderful presentation on the problems. Imagine the problems of translating just the first paragraph of Finnegan's Wake. You know what would be good is if you get a translator to translate uh, Finnegan's Wake into English. That would be good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. In French translation, um, there are always big issues about um, the French language and ex style expectations. Yeah, very getting the upper hand. Yeah, that's why I think Fran French is a is a dying language <laughs> because yeah. they're so keen on keeping <laughs> it exactly the same as it always has been, and that's yeah. why English is uh, is dominating yeah. the world because we'll yeah. take everything. Yeah, the I, um, Milan Kundera, for instance, translated into French. His early works were translated into French, and uh, he had a he had an absolute attack once when he read a review of his book called The Joke, La Plaisanterie, in French, and the reviewer commented on the Baroque language. And he had someone check, and he saw that his language, which is very plain and simple in Czech, had been Baroqued. <laughs> Baroque. It was Baroque. <laughs> exactly. And not only that, but chapters, order of chapters had been changed, yeah. things like this. And he went off the deep end and uh, right, since so. then has had, a, had it retranslated and since then has had a grip like this on the translations of his work into French and now he writes in French to avoid the problem. Yeah. But it is often a problem with translating, with French translators, is that they get too flowery. Yeah. They get carried away with the, the you know, the, the exercice de style yeah. that so the best translator. Pooh, there are so many I wouldn't dream of of naming one of them. Wouldn't dream no. of going out on a limb and no. just uh, helping mm -mm, us mm -mm. pour mm -mm. unilingual types out. Well, you have. Mm -mm. You've given us some good mm -mm. uh, names of good translators. So I guess we could.
I think I think that at the moment, Anglophone translators at least are just struggling. There's no rush to translate anything. Nobody really wants to read anything in translation. Um, there's Sorry, it, th- there's no urgency. There's no expectancy. There's no excitement about who's trans who got that book to translate because probably that let's say say a brand new wonderful novel from Iceland um, that wins the impact award. But th- they only Im- win the impact award if they've been translated. That's the problem. Uh, so that doesn't work. But let's say there's a wonderful oh new writer from they somewhere. They, the impact award is only uh, given to an English. English language book, but you know why, of course, it's because the money comes from the United States. I thought it's from Dublin. It's That's where it's presented, but it's Boston Is it? money. But what's interesting is that in the years, the few years of the Impact Award, I think more than 50% has been given to translations. Pamuk got it, Hertha Müller, who's a Romanian translator, who, uh, writer who writes in German, um, other ones have been translations. So in effect, the, 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 the prize, <laughs> the prize is, uh, I wonder if those prizes shouldn't be shared with the translators. They are, 50-50. Oh, they are. oh, it's 50-50. 50-50. Oh, okay, that's good. Yeah. Because it's $250,000. Oh, I know. And it's that's a lot more than anything else. The bookers... Yeah. But this spend. year, the booker has instituted a co-prize for translations into English. This year. Wow, so you guys yeah. are... Yeah, slowly, 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 but surely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they're recognizing that um, translation is something that must must happen, and and should therefore also be recognized. But translation is it's an area that is is so controversial and so easy to so easy to attack and so easy to criticize and so easy to tear down somebody's translation just on the, based on one word. If you get some smart critic who can write a circle around you and, and go to town with one word that was wrong or that was that was maybe not what they think is the right word. Well, that's a, again, I think that spells out the importance for the translator to establish a very close relationship with the, uh, the original author. Yeah, and also for for a, a broader education and, and recognition of what it is to translate a book. What does it? What kind of labor and in-depth knowledge and labor is involved in translating someone else's words written in another culture, often in another time, and sometimes in dialect, sometimes with with all kinds of of neologisms and things like that, to turn that into the language into another language in another culture where people have different expectations, different re- reading habits, different baggage. And it, it's, it should be something that's recognized and, and lauded and celebrated rather than picked at and underpaid. <laughs> Louise uh, von Flotto, thank you very much for uh, talking with us and I uh, wish you uh, success in your 